Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. So glad you could join me. I actually had a great guest lined up, and unfortunately, well, these things happen. So, we'll catch up. But uh, I will, uh, I, I, it's, a, it's a wonderful article by, by a writer by the name of Brene Goforth about how telemedicine is actually going to leave us better prepared for the next coronavirus. Oh, you didn't think this was going to be the only one, did you? Well, <laughs> oh my goodness, it's uh, it's been such a uh, an interesting weekend, and I I know the word interesting gets used a lot, but I can we agree that it's it's quite descriptive of of what's happening with us, and the the intensity just keeps ratcheting up. You know, I I'm going to sound like I'm ungrateful. And, and I acknowledge this right up front. For some people, this is going to sound like, Brian, where where are you coming from to, to not be showing some gratitude for, for all that our, our politicians or members of the political class are doing, you know, to try to, uh, to, to save us? And I guess what I'm suggesting is their efforts to save us look a lot like exactly what could be wrecking us. And uh, nowhere is that more clear than uh, Paul Rosenberg's commentary. I shared it in the last hour of the show. It's uh, posted for podcast now, so you can check it out for yourself on uh, LovingLiberty.net. First hour of today's show is uh, it's, it's a goldmine of great information, but I'm telling you the crowning jewel is Paul Rosenberg's discussion of why politicians, when they sense that there is fear out there generating a public movement, take great pains to go plant themselves in front of that parade and loudly agree with everybody who's in fear. And in fact, they, they take it one step further so as to, to distinguish themselves. And then they present themselves as the solution. Yes, it's my parade. Now I have the solution for you. And frankly, a lot of the things that they're doing are simply making things worse. Not so much on the, on the part of the coronavirus, which, look, we can, we can agree. It's scary. And it appears that uh, it is spreading, but the only alternative wasn't to, well, we've got to blow up the economy in order to save us. And that's the way many politicians look at it, as Paul Rosenberg explains, because they see everything in terms of, well, I have to speak the language of control so people know who's in charge and know that everything is under control. And anyway, there's, there is no escape from, from some of the consequences at this point, but there is hope. So I don't want you to feel like, oh, well, I just threw in the towel. I guess we're all just going to stagger around in rags in the ruins until we starve to death. That's, that's not what I'm suggesting. There's an excellent article, actually, from the uh, Mises Wire. This is from uh, Mises.org, and it's from Matthew Tannis, Why We Need Free Markets to Fight Pandemics. Now, before I launch into this, I want to make the the distinction. When we're talking about free markets, we mean people are unencumbered by government regulation and government oversight that micromanages all of these decisions or centrally plans all of these decisions um, for for whatever justification they're getting. It's for your safety, says the FDA, even as they allow drugs to come out that, uh, you know, will damage your heart valves or otherwise have to be recalled because they have bad side effects. I mean, it it happens. The point is, 
those who administer these bureaucracies are no smarter than the rest of us. They're not infallible, even though sometimes we're, we're coached to believe that maybe they are. But if you really want to see solutions come, you're going to find them in the free market. Why? Well, this article explains very well why that is. Matthew Tannis says the natural response in the face of a pandemic like the one we're experiencing today with COVID-19 is to take immediate and direct action to curb the crisis. We are told we need to have extensive quarantines, citywide lockdowns, and shelter-in-place orders. We supposedly need to limit the number of goods people can buy so they don't hoard them up and definitely keep prices where they are at so people can afford what they need to get. I'm sorry, so they can afford to get what they need. Wow, great English there, Bri. Hospitals and clinics must cancel surgeries and new treatment plans to ensure they're prepared for the waves of patients catching the illness. Restaurants need to switch to takeout models. Stores need to switch to online only, close their retail establishments, and prioritize important shipments. Governments need to make sure that everyone does what they should do to ensure we all make it out alive. That pretty much sounds like what we're experiencing, right? But Matthew Tannis says, what if I told you that none of the above was true? What if I told you that all we need to do in this situation is what you need in an every, every day in a free society, prices that can rapidly and easily adjust to changes in supply and demand? Now, he calls this right. He says, I can almost hear the teeth grinding and fist shaking in response with exclamations. You must not care about your fellow man. But he says, hear me out as I walk through the effects that such prices would have. He says, let's start with what's occurred so far. People have flooded grocery stores to stock up on everything from canned goods to toilet paper, emptying the shelves in the process. Hospitals and clinics have, in line with CDC guidance, this phrase is ubiquitous, canceled various appointments and planned treatments or surgeries. Amazon has limited third-party shipments to its warehouses to high-demand items. Increased remote work has crashed remote coordination services. Governments everywhere have engaged in various levels of forced quarantining and shut down numerous businesses or ordinary ways of doing business. Now, none of these effects or approaches of mitigation and avoidance are a problem per se. Much of this would be naturally done in response to a pandemic and the effects on demand would be similar. But what can be said is that such measures are taken crudely and mostly blindly in the absence of free prices. The empty shelves would not be so prevalent were prices allowed to rise in contradiction of governmental laws against price gouging. Such a result would lead to natural rationing by consumers and would incentivize the ramp up of production of goods that are in high demand. At current prices, it is true that some companies could potentially bear a short-term loss to increase production as a charitable endeavor. However, Marginal producers, and even non-marginal ones as the crisis continues, will only be able to ramp up production, even temporarily, if the prices rise. That's because a rise in prices informs producers of shifts in relative demand. That that hypothetically the price of milk does not rise as much as the price of eggs or canned beans is a vitally important piece of information that cannot be conveyed through empty shelves alone. Rising prices would induce makers of the latter goods to expand production much more than the producers of the former, and they would also encourage new entrants to prioritize accordingly. We can observe the same mechanism at work in price drops which are normally allowed to happen. The decreased demand for certain goods, such as tickets to events, flights, or crowded dine-in restaurants, signals these industries to find alternatives. 
These may include restaurants shifting to a takeout model, closing their main dining areas for the duration of the crisis, as has occurred in some places, or turning those dining areas into temporary warehouses for needed items, although this option seems foreclosed due to frozen prices, disincentivizing the additional production that would make this helpful. Now, Matthew Tannis also points out that firms can also temporarily shutter their doors and send their workers into the labor force as potential temporary employees in areas that need them to produce vital necessities. Instead, the government approach has been to propose bailouts and universal income checks, while in some cases mandating the clear waste of resources. Price changes, he points out, also differ by location which naturally encourages the market to focus on the hardest-hit areas. A pandemic is not going to hit the entire country all at once. And although it may seem obvious, particularly at first, which areas are the worst off, the information that prices convey is vital to determining what the actual needs are. So it may be that Seattle and New York City are the worst hit right now, but that alone does not tell you that Seattle is really needing ventilators while New York is short on nurses. Allowing prices to work in health care is of the most vital necessity. Rather than the crude strategy of canceling care not considered urgent while stockpiling resources in preparation for the worst, Matthew Tanner says it's better to allow resources to be directed to where they are most needed via the price mechanism. Regulations restricting the supply of care, including the construction of new facilities, the licensing of existing ones, and the number of people allowed to be licensed should be suspended or better repealed. High prices for care, particularly for specialized laborers such as doctors and nurses, would invite the sector to expand its capacity by accepting med school trainees or professionals with lapsed licenses as temporary employees. High prices for emergency coronavirus care, particularly if permitted to be higher in the worst-off regions, would induce medical professionals to temporarily switch specialization and move to areas where they can do the most good. People taken in from shuttered businesses might be able to provide basic care and monitoring with minimal training, allowing those with more specialized training to prioritize the care that needs it most. Now, there's more to this article. We'll come back to it in just a few moments again. This is Matthew Tannis, a software developer and a contributor to the blog Disenthrallment. But he's making a powerful case for why the free market is the better way to fight a pandemic. And we'll come back just the other side of these messages. This is Loving Liberty. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. By the way, lines are open, 801-331-8113. Chances are you have some time on your hands. I don't know, maybe you're feeling a little bit lonely. Well, I'm here. We can can at least connect up over the telephone. Again, 801-331-8113. I've been sharing with you an article from Matthew Tannis writing for, uh, actually, this was originally published on the blog, disenthrallment.com. I picked it up off Mises.org on their uh, newswire about why free markets are needed in order to fight pandemics. 
And I think he has some very solid ideas here that unfortunately just fall on deaf ears whenever you mention this to politicians. Why? Well, because it doesn't involve them micromanaging every single little decision. It doesn't involve them getting the credit for saving us from whatever it is that, uh, that is causing us concern. And I know that's a very jaded opinion to take of, of uh, politicians, but gosh dang it, I've been paying attention for a long time, long enough to know it really does describe the vast majority of them and how they see themselves. They're so quick to take credit for things that they have nothing to do with and so quick to implement solutions that have unintended consequences. And they're never the ones who feel the pain. Why do you suppose that is? Could it be because government never really closes? Could it be because their pay is something that they don't have to worry about? I mean, it's got to be nice when you uh, when you work for an organization that can actually go out there and take by force from everybody that it wants to in the form of taxes. Yeah. All of the uh, all of the adulation, all of the, uh, you know, the accolades when something goes right, none of the accountability, none of the responsibility when things don't go as they've intended. Back to why the free market is the better way to fight things like a pandemic. Matthew Tannis says insurance companies facing these high emergency costs would be heavily incentivized to come up with additional ways to mitigate the risk of spreading the illness. So this would mean things like tests that people could take at home and drop off at collection points, for instance. That would allow for testing to be done without cues of potentially sick people that will almost certainly be sick when they get done. Even payments and possibly delivery of necessities to at-risk patients to incentivize a self-quarantine would be possible. And most importantly, there are likely very many other possibilities, he says, that he as a single person has not and might not even be able to come up with. This kind of innovation and adaptation can only be optimally handled by entrepreneurs responding to changing prices, not central planners, no matter how intelligent, knowledgeable, or well-intentioned. He says the free market price system allows for the rapid and intensive reallocation of resources that is necessary in a crisis scenario like a pandemic. What needs to be done in such a crisis is not to attempt to steer the market to ensure that it provides what is needed. This approach is almost always guaranteed to make the situation worse than it has to be. But to let it to be to let it be free to do what it always does, and that is match the goals of entrepreneurial producers with the needs of of the populace. Bingo. That's it in a nutshell. And by the way, some people are doing this without government permission. And again, I refer you to the article by Paul Rosenberg, where he gives some concrete examples of of how people are innovating and trying to do their best to solve these problems without all of that government red tape. Now, they can be held accountable if they cause actual harm. You understand that. But they need to be free to innovate instead of having to ask permission for every tiptoe that they take. Let's go to the phones, 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello there. Uh, anyway, on this, uh, your last uh, um, the last show there, they talked a little bit about God. I, I feel that this God is completely out of the picture. You know, and if God was to bring a plague just to sort out a few people, he's, he's done a pretty good job of it. It's such a good job that I don't even think it could be man-made. And uh, what I mean by that is if you look at all these big-name people, 
that are supposedly uh, got it or, or, you know, might be positive for it. This is, the the numbers are, are just astronomical. And so what I believe is probably probably 90% of the people might have it somewhere already, but they're not testing for it. And probably there's been a lot of death, and there's probably been a lot, Probably just a lot of just sick people, but it, it's the panic that Humpty Dumpty's fell off the wall, and it's going to be really hard to put back together again, with especially with people sheltering down. They need to get together. Let me like ask. Let me yeah. ask you this: um, do, the, Are you are you suggesting then that maybe the government's response, these shelter-in-place things, the restrictions, the closing of businesses, is that uh, making it worse? Oh, astronomically worse. You can't put this Humpty Dumpty back together again. It's going to fall. What will happen is the government will take over everything. They've already passed all these uh, executive orders to take over the farms and stuff years ago. I used to have a list of them, but since then I've lost them. But this started out of the, in 1914 with the Trading with the Enemy Act, and they just keep doing it and passing these executive orders and bankruptcy, you know, especially like in 1933 where they confiscated all the gold. Well, they haven't repealed that law. So gold's still against the law. Just people don't know it. So when they want to come and get this stuff, they just foreclose. They foreclose on all the, all the businesses because most of them are all, you know, uh, corporations, so they're partners with the state. And so uh, I got to admit, that's I, I hadn't heard that gold had been, you know, that private ownership of gold was outlawed because I, I've been yeah. kind of, I've been kind of a precious metal bug, you know, for for a little while. And it, it seems easy enough well, to get I'll it. Tell you, tell you exact date. It was March 9th of 1933. Right. Well, I, I remember that uh, that uh, FDR, um, you yeah. know, stole the gold from the American people, or at least all those who would turn it in. But I was I was almost sure that someone down the road had said, okay, enough of that, and they had lifted that. So that's that's no, news to me. I just no, they, I wasn't they, aware they, of it. They, they never repeal these laws. They just they just sit dormant. And that way they can just pick out the laws they want to use later on. And habeas corpus has been suspended for a long time, since 1966 when they made the Post-Conviction Remedy Act. See, they've got this ploy there where... Uh, when you go to, uh, when you get arrested or something, you don't. They want you to think, believe that your only time where, where you have uh, uh, the legal rights to habeas corpus is after you're convicted, <laughs> and then it's a, a different whole system. It's let let me like let me ask you this though: if if that is the case. Um, why then would the Department of Justice be be asking Congress to give it permission to suspend parts of the Constitution, like habeas well, corpus, because, during this coronavirus outbreak, uh, if it was already a fait accompli? Well, because they don't really want to tell anybody it's already suspended, you know, let the cat out of the bag, so to speak. But hmm. to tell you how it's been suspended is all these people that was arrested for, on terrorism charges. They still haven't been tried. I, I, well, yeah. I read all these cases. No, you know, you... The habeas corpus has been suspended a long time. I, I can tell you all three of the habeas corpus numbers. In fact, I just called the U.S. District Court, and I, I have an, an original habeas corpus that they just um, 
filed on, under the 2241. Well, the other ones under under Title 28, uh, there's 2241, which is kind of the original habeas corpus. I'm, I'm not familiar with any of these, but but go ahead. Yeah. But then there's 2254, and that's that's a state custody remedy. And then there's a 2255, which is actually called a motion. That's when you're been convicted in a in a U.S. court. Well, I'm, I'm going to stop you here because we're up against the break. I appreciate you doing your part to help keep us informed. Um, I I agree with you in part that, uh, look, since the since the passage of the Patriot Act, um, the uh, Defense uh, Authorization Act, the National Defense Authorization Act, as long as you're declared to be, you know, part of a terrorist organization, you are presumed to have no rights. In other words, no due process is afforded. So whether it's on the books or not, that's, you know, in practice, this is how it's being treated. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I am so pleased to welcome my guest, Brene Goforth. I'll tell you, you and I were having some trouble with uh, with Skype, so I was I was worried this wasn't going to happen. But Brene, you you made it happen. You're you're a can do kind of person. Yeah, yeah, we figured it out. Thank you for having me. Hey, I I read your article, and I know that uh, you have been. Uh, you have probably been sought out to to comment on this article. Telemedicine will make us better prepared for the next coronavirus. And and I have to say, with all the weird stuff that's going on and all the, the giant steps backward that we've been taking, there are some pretty neat things happening due to technology. Set the stage for us as to, uh, first of all, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about telemedicine, what it is for the sake of those who don't know, and then let's let's apply it to crises like the one that we find ourselves in right now. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, telemedicine has been around for a long time, but less than 1% of Americans actually utilize the service. So what is going on right now to make the service more accessible to people um, is that we're rolling back some government restrictions. So there are restrictions being rolled back on uh, Medicaid and Medicare reimbursements to make uh, more telemedicine eligible for those, as well as during the state of emergency that we're in right now, we're seeing some of the in-state licensure requirements being waived in states like North North Carolina, um, you know, South Carolina, things like that. They're waiving the regulations that require you to have a North Carolina or South Carolina license to be able to actually practice telemedicine in their state. So those are some of the things that kind of keep telemedicine from expanding is having to limit themselves with the physicians who can practice it. Um, And those are some of the things that we're seeing rolled back to expand telemedicine in America right now. So what's the advantage of telemedicine? I mean, a lot of people are a lot of people are learning the experience and the, the advantage of being able to work from home right now, telecommuting, you know, to, to their job. But telemedicine, what uh, what advantages does it bring to the table? Absolutely. So there are lots of advantages to telemedicine, one of them, of course, being costs. The last telemedicine appointment that I personally had was forty five dollars, but also doctors on demand for un- 
insured people uh, provides a $75 flat rate for telemedicine appointments, which is one thing that you don't get in traditional um, in-person healthcare. You typically don't get the price before you get the service, which you do in telemedicine, which is very nice. On top of that, uh, there's lower waiting periods, typically less than 15 minutes, whereas an ER, uh, it can take you two hours to get out of there. So it's much quicker. But currently in this pandemic that we have right now, a lot of people have fear to go to the hospital because they're afraid that they might have something contagious and give it to something else or contract potentially uh, COVID-19 there. So one of the great things about telemedicine is that you don't have to enter a hospital. You can call a doctor, get a prescription, go to the drive-through of your pharmacy and have to interact with nearly nobody so that you don't give anybody what you have and maybe you don't contract what others have. Yeah, you nailed it. I mean, an emergency room is a great place to be when you're having an emergency, but right now it's the last place I'd want to be because I would assume most people there are there because they either are sick or they believe they're sick. And I'm trying to keep my distance. Yeah, six feet. And you don't get that in a lot of emergency rooms. So why would it take a state of emergency for regulators to roll back some of these regulations and expand accessibility to to telemedicine? Well, that's a great question and uh, a very frustrating one. (laughs) So a lot of people have been advocating for rolling back of these kinds of regulations for a long time. Uh, But the reality is in a, you know, emergency situation like this one, people are willing to acknowledge that they do restrict the supply of medicine and of healthcare professionals uh, to people who need to see a doctor or a nurse practitioner or a pharmacist or whoever else it may be. So it's only in these cases of really strong demand that it really stresses our healthcare system and lets us just see how much we have restricted the supply. So, you know, legislators are quick to go and open that supply during states of emergency, but they aren't so quick to do it when they're not faced with this in, you know, right in front of them that people are looking for physicians and it's it's just too difficult to get to one when everybody wants to see one right now. You know, I, I'm hopeful that uh, the rolling back of some of these regulations might convince some of the right people that, hey, maybe we didn't need these to be quite so tight in the first place. You mentioned in your article the uh, Interstate Medical Licensure Compact. Tell us about that and, and what, what does this hope to accomplish? Right. So currently in each individual state, uh, you need a license from that state to practice healthcare there with few exceptions. So the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact is something that streamlines the application process for physicians who are already licensed in another state. So there are lots of states who participate in um, the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact, but there are six states who are considering legislation currently that would add them into that group of people. Um, Those are places like New York, uh, Rhode Island, South Carolina, and Florida. And hopefully this will um, be able to bring out support for those to show that it it can be really difficult for doctors from other states to be able to practice in Utah, in North Carolina, something like that, if they don't have a license there. And these are highly qualified people um, who we're just kind of artificially restricting from residents of certain states. Yeah, I mean, look, I get it. I understand the states. You know, we want to make sure that you are competent, but sometimes it seems like when someone has gone through everything that it takes to become a medical professional, 
I would think they've proven themselves, or at least, you know, to my satisfaction, they've proven themselves capable. I, I hate to see that. Well, you have to have a license in this state if you want to, to help treat people. So I hope this is something that catches on, if, if just by sheer weight of numbers. Um, talk to me about uh, the, the understanding that, okay, we're dealing with coronavirus now, but as we move forward, it's not likely that this is the, the last such challenge we're going to face, is it? Absolutely not. And so we've seen this time and time again with SARS, with, you know, the original SARS, uh, Ebola, swine flu. This happens over and over again. And this one is the most severe that we've seen in the measures that have been taken and, you know, how contagious it is. But uh, we have proven throughout the 21st century that this isn't the, the last time this is going to happen. And we need to be prepared before next time instead of retroactively taking out these laws that are harming the healthcare supply. We need to get rid of them permanently so that they're not there to prevent us from treating people when another coronavirus epidemic, whatever that may be, happens in the future. So I guess the, the silver lining, if there is one in in the current coronavirus, coronavirus scare, is that a lot of people, because this seems to, I, I think we're all being impacted in some way, but this would, would bring to a lot of people's attention some of those artificial barriers that uh, questionably maybe shouldn't even be there in the first place. Absolutely. And hopefully we saw in Florida then expand scope of practice for people down there. So and that's permanent. So hopefully this, if anything comes out of it, is uh, a reevaluation of the way that we restrict the healthcare supply in the United States and how we can remove some of these barriers to entry um, and, you know, barriers to, to moving from state to state so that we can bring healthcare providers where they need to be rather than where they are currently. Okay, again, we're talking with Brene Goforth. She is a contributor to Young Voices and also a policy analyst at a state-based think tank in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, I'm going to link to your article when I post this for podcasts, and I'll shoot you a link as well so you can share it, Brene. Um, I want to ask you in the moments uh, before, before I have to let you go here, how are things where you are? What's, what's the mood? Are you feeling encouraged? Are, are people staying home? What, what are you seeing? Right. So... It's very interesting where I'm at right now uh, because I'm in Charlotte, and so that has the largest outbreak in my state, um, but also because I'm currently staying with my family right now. I didn't want to be alone in Raleigh having to be quarantined like that. So uh, the person that I'm staying with right now is a nurse, and so you know she sees the, the lack of PPEs in her own hospital and things like that, and you know she knows how people can qualify for the test or not qualify for the test. And one of the, the scariest things about this disease is that it, you know, you can carry it and not even know you have it. So you don't qualify for testing. We didn't have a lot of tests at the beginning. There's still quite a shortage. And so it's really difficult to prevent. And I think that's, you know, rightfully making a lot of people a little bit anxious. But uh, hopefully we're getting to the point where our curve is going to flatten out and, and life can go back to normal at least in a few months. Uh, so I, I think a lot of people are just really hoping that we get there and holding out for that moment. Thank you so much for shedding some light on this. I'm asking this of every person I talk to from wherever they are. Hey, how are things in your neck of the woods? Uh, Bernie, go forth. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today on Loving Liberty. Stay safe, and I hope we get to talk again here real soon. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. 
All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be back after these messages. Once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. All right, I I have what I think may be the most useful information of the day that I want to share with you, and it has to do with uh, saying yes to life during difficult times. Now, look, I'm under no illusion that what we're under right now is a very difficult time in, in the sense that it's there's a lot of uncertainty. It's uncomfortable for many of us, for the people who have either been laid off or are facing the potential loss of their jobs or other financial ruin or difficulty. It's it's very uncomfortable. But the, but the real hardship hasn't hit yet. You don't have people starving in the streets. You don't have, uh, at least at this point, you know, helicopter gunships following our every moves and tanks rolling up and down the avenues. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying to use an absurd, extreme case scenario, but like a lot of folks, I sometimes wonder, is that stuff not far off? Things are getting really strange. I think we will all be feeling more pain in the days ahead. And I'm not saying that with any sense of, ha ha, hooray for the masochists. I'm saying, you know, um, we're all going to feel the 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 fallout of steps that have been taken, the inconveniences, the illnesses. Uh, we may yet see, you know, the, the disease spread on a far wider basis. We may all, you know, know people who have suffered with it or perhaps even died from it at some point. There are a lot of unknowns, and, and there's just no two ways to put it. It's, it's scary, the direction that we seem to be heading. It seems like a lot of stuff may be spiraling out of control. So when I found this article on intellectualtakeout.org by Michael Cook, it was a, a wonderful tribute to Viktor Frankl. And since you're going to have some time on your hands, if you don't already, if you're, you know, sheltering in place, you really should get your hands on a copy of his book, Man's Search for Meaning. It's one of the most powerful arguments for human dignity of the 20th century. And you have to understand the author, Viktor Frankl, is an Austrian psychiatrist and Jew who spent about three years in concentration camps, including Auschwitz. His father, his mother, brother and his pregnant wife all died in the camps. But as the article points out, Frankel was astonishingly productive, and soon after he was released in April of 1945, he was back at work. The next year, he wrote his memoir of Auschwitz in German. The title of the first edition was Trotzdem Jasum Lebenssagen. I'm not going to try and read it the rest of the way. I can't speak German. The translation is roughly, in spite of everything, say yes to life, a psychologist's experience of the concentration camp. Now, later, he would add a section reflecting on his experiences and sketching what became the third school of Viennese psychology, logotherapy. Man's Search for Meaning was an immediate bestseller, which made the author famous around the world. And by the time of his death in 1997, it it had sold more than 10 million copies. Now, it's astonishingly contemporary. 
And the author here points out far more so than any other book that I've ever read. He says it speaks to the anxieties of a society in which suffering has no meaning and euthanasia seems like a plausible solution to life's pain. The horror of the Holocaust has been chronicled in thousands of books. Frankel's brief reminiscences are different because they're not lurid stories of sadism and death and despair. Rather, he asks himself, how did we survive? And keep in mind, only one in 28 did survive. It was not uncommon to see prisoners give up. They no longer desired to live. And in a few days, death carried them off. This was a question with which, which had been with him from the beginning of his professional life. In 1930, as a young doctor, he organized a special counseling program for young people. In 1931, for the first time in years, there were no youth suicides in Vienna. For several years, he also ran a clinic for women battling suicidal thoughts. Now, at Auschwitz, suicide was a temptation, but relatively few people ran into the wire. When someone began to speak about suicide, the other prisoners tried to talk them out of it. And Frankel saw what kind of arguments brought back the desire to live. He found that when people believed that they were irreplaceable, they felt a responsibility to persevere. As he put it, a man who becomes conscious of the responsibility he bears toward a human being who affectionately waits for him or to an unfinished work will never be able to throw away his life. He knows the why for his existence and will be able to bear almost any how, end quote. In one remarkable vignette, Frankel recalled the misery of one night in the barracks when 2,500 men were starved for a day after a prisoner stole a few potatoes. As they lay in the dark, the warden of the block asked Frankel to explain why they should keep on living. Now, it was an impossible request, but he rose to the, equa- to the occasion. And first he quoted Nietzsche, That which does not kill me makes me stronger. The dreadful experiences of the camp would make them strong and resolute. He then looked to the future. It was possible that they could survive. And then to the past, citing a German poet, What you have experienced no power on earth can take from you. And finally, he argued that they could give their lives a meaning. Even if their struggle was hopeless, it still had dignity. Frankel said, I said that someone looks down on each of us in difficult hours. A friend, a wife, somebody alive or dead, or a god. And he would not expect us to disappoint him. He would hope to find us suffering proudly, not miserably, knowing how to die. And he continued, Our sacrifice did have a meaning. Those of us who had any religious faith, I said frankly, could understand without difficulty. I told them of a comrade who on his arrival in camp had tried to make a pact with heaven that his suffering and death should save the human being he loved from a painful end. For this man's suffering and death was meaningful. His was a sacrifice of the deepest significance. He did not want to die for nothing. None of us wanted that. End quote. And when the lights went on again, his fellow prisoners stumbled toward him to thank him for giving them the strength to go on. Now, Frankel was a devout Jew, but his theory, which he called logotherapy, was not just meant for believers. Its cornerstone was the observation that the strongest impulse in human life is not food or sex or money, but the search for meaning. With meaning, we can endure anything. We can even find happiness among the desolation of a concentration camp. Without it, the smallest obstacles become unbearable burdens. In fact, obstacles are essential for the growth of our humanity. 
Frankel said, I consider it a dangerous misconception of mental hygiene to assume that what a man needs in the first place is equilibrium or, as it is called in biology, homeostasis, i.e. a tensionless state. He wrote what that what man actually needs is not a tensionless state, but rather the striving and struggling for a worthwhile goal, a freely chosen task, end quote. Now, I know you may be saying, Brian, this is apples and oranges. You're talking about a concentration camp survivor versus people who are being told stay home so that you don't spread an illness. But I suspect that the same principles apply. And this is one of the reasons why I'm sharing this article, because it maybe it doesn't apply perfectly now. I hope it doesn't have to apply in the future, but I suspect that it could. And to that end, I want you to remember If you have meaning, you can endure and you can make the best of just about anything. The article goes on to say some editions of his book titled in English from death camp to existentialism, which highlighted the philosophical underpinnings for Frankel's novel approach to psychiatry. Man's duty is to confront the challenge of each minute. And at one point he makes the almost shocking assertion that we should abandon the academic quest for the meaning of life. Frankel said we needed to stop asking about the meaning of life and instead to think of ourselves as those who were being questioned by life daily and hourly. Our answer must consist not in talk and meditation, but in right action and right conduct. Life ultimately means taking the responsibility to find the right answer to its problems and to fulfill the the tasks for which it constantly sets, which it constantly sets for each individual. End quote. This exhilarating corollary to this is that life can never be boring, that every moment has a kind of divine spark which lights the road ahead. After World War II, Frankel's life was devoted to promoting logotherapy. He married again in 1947 and had one daughter. He wrote a number of books which were translated into a number of languages, and he received 29 honorary doctorates before he died in 1997. Even if his star has faded in recent years, it's not because his message is no longer needed. Now more than ever, people dread meaningless suffering. But with his own life, Viktor Frankl showed that no moment of suffering lacks dignity and meaning. I'll have this posted in the uh, show notes, and I hope that you'll take the time to look at it and reread it and share it. Again, an article by Michael Cook, Viktor Frankl saying yes to life in difficult times. Talked with a good friend over the weekend, and uh, and I got to tell you, man... The talk did not leave me feeling like I had just encountered a ray of sunshine. He was very concerned, and perhaps rightly so, for what he sees unfolding around us. And I could feel my sense of alarm starting to to kind of rise, like, uh, you know, maybe I've been in denial about this. But the thing that brought me back and that put my feet back underneath me was to remember, I have a purpose. And whether you believe it or not, you have a purpose as well. Figure out what it is, live that purpose right to the very last breath.